It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz, including artist profiles, the next generation, educators, festivals, producers, venues, photographers, media, and a whole lot more. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. The mission with this podcast is to present you with a variety of topics about the music that we know and love called jazz. We cover a broad spectrum of topics relating to jazz, such as profiles of established artists, educational programs, venues, writers, and one special category for us is the one that we call Rising Stars. Today's episode is devoted to one such rising star who is a composer, a pianist, vocalist, lyricist, the multi-talented Hannah Bayardi. Hannah, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me here. You know, let me begin, Hannah, by setting the stage with your mission, which is uh, while you are a jazz artist, you have a mission which is to break barriers between genres and to debunk musical stereotypes. Explain to us what you mean by that. Yeah, so the idea of debunking musical stereotypes um, is near and dear to me because I feel that um, a lot of artists that are considered jazz, we can break that down further and differentiate ourselves within the world of jazz. Something I really appreciated that Lydia Liebman mentioned on your podcast was that jazz has many branches and that it's ever-evolving. And that's something that I think really resonates in terms of my artistry because I kind of see me fitting into the larger jazz picture in a contemporary space. And I think I want to just be open with with listeners that that's where I'm seeing myself fit into the world of jazz, marrying a lot of my interests from R&B, soul, and jazz, and bringing them together into sort of a unique place within the world of jazz. You started playing the piano at age three. I I, I find that not only inspiring, but incredible. At my age, uh, I can't even remember 33, let alone three. Tell us about that. That is something that tends to shock people. And I, for some reason, it, it seemed natural to me. Just the first time I saw friends of mine playing the piano, I was immediately drawn to the instrument, into the sound, into the timbre of the piano. And I remember just becoming obsessed with wanting to be a pianist and wanting to play. So I asked my parents for a piano at three and was lucky enough to um, have a Grinnell Brothers to kind of tinker around on. And I don't remember leaving. I think that was just the beginning of the end. It wasn't a hobby. It was definitely a passion that just developed and developed over the years. So I did sit down and the first thing that came out was a song I later called Mountains, which is a composition I wrote. And uh, it was just like a simple one-five pattern. And I started playing and I figured out, hey, I really like this writing music business. I think I want to stick with this. So that was the seed. Where did jazz start to come into play? Because it it looks like in your bio, uh, you had mentioned something about at the age of seven, jazz came into the picture. How did that come about? Yes. So when I was seven, Uh, I started studying with a professor at U of M, Flint. His name is Brian de Blasio, very accomplished jazz pianist and educator. And he had, 
uh, taken me on. <laughs> At the time, he had only been teaching college students, and I was kind of the outlier And that I was very young, and he was a little hesitant to take on a seven-year-old when he was used to teaching at the collegiate level. So I convinced him. My, my mom was like, you have to work with her. I, <laughs> I think you'll enjoy working with her. And so I um, kind of begrudgingly took me on, but endearingly, you know. And we soon developed a very nice relationship, a very, you know, men he was a wonderful mentor to me. And actually, I studied with him up until the age of like, around 20 until I started attending University of Michigan. So he really was instrumental in inspiring my love of jazz. Um, a fond story I remember was when I was little, kind of going to a Barnes and Noble and going through just tons of jazz records and just saturating my ears with the sound of, of jazz and it, all its forms and all the instrumentalists who have contributed to its legacy. And really just remember falling in love with the music of Oscar Peterson when I was young. And I came back and I wanted to learn all the songs by ear. I said, I don't know about the sight reading business yet, but doesn't it go like this? Da 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 da. And I'd, I'd kind of play it out and it goes, yeah, something like that. And then we ended up undertaking these like month upon month long projects where I'd learn a jazz transcription by ear. How much of an influence were your parents when it comes to jazz music? Or was it maybe a Uncle Johnny, who might have had a greater influence or impact on your love and appreciation for jazz? That's a very uh, kind of fun story my grandpa told me about his uncle. So it would be my great uncle Johnny, who uh, infamously, after um, receiving several Purple Hearts uh, after the war, you know, was touring the country as a freelance rogue pianist, kind of a honky-tonk jazz blues pianist. And he went to all 50 states simply with cash in his hand and a bottle of gin and just went around and played piano and he learned by ear. This is somebody that never read a note in his life and he, he just said, hey, Ronnie, hum this for me and he run, you know, rolled off a rondoletto. And so, of course, my grandpa likes to tell me that's where I got my musical genes from, Johnny's genes. But, um, you know, as my, I love to believe that. And I also know my parents um, were a huge influence. And neither of them are actual by trade musicians, but they love music. Um, they love to sing. They're super musical. Um, my dad always would be blasting, like, R&B soul music in the car, like 92.3, our local, you know, R&B station. And then my mom would love to sing. And she'd always be finding new artists that she's like, you should listen to this artist, Hannah. She's kind of like the one boots on the ground, you know, <laughs> showing me what's out there. They're always, you know, searching for new music. Really, they're, they have a really wide palette, diverse palette in terms of what kind of music they consume. And so they are, they've been a huge support in my life in terms of nurturing my growth and exposing me to a wide variety of artists. So no particular overplaying of Oscar Peterson on the home phonograph or maybe constantly on the, on the radio, if you will. Not really. No, I, it came from me. It, it was driven by me. I mean, my parents have been wholly supportive from the very get-go in getting me connected to a teacher. But I think that love of jazz started with Brian sharing the art of improvisation. That's what attracted me to jazz, was that there wasn't really a confine. Or as we mentioned earlier, it isn't like a box you're put in, like a genre. Jazz is ever-evolving, and it's centered around improvisation. So that's really what spoke to me at a young age. And that, that's really key to this music called jazz because it does vary. It, it, there's no specific in-stone writing that you need to take an approach to when you're either performing it, 
composing it, etc. It has to be, uh, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, an emotional and, and creative path to take. Yeah, definitely. I would agree. When you ended up going to college, you were at the University of Michigan. You studied jazz there, or what was the actual course of your curriculum? So I uh, did study, I received a BFA, Bachelor of Fine Arts in Jazz Studies, with a concentration in piano. And at that point, I actually developed a love of singing, too. Around 14, I started studying with Sonny Wilkinson, a professor at Michigan State in addition to my to supplement my piano studies. I studied with Jerry the late Jerry Allen and Benny Green and Ellen Rowe were some fabulous and diverse mentors that coached my improvisation and really inspired my writing too. So they were a bit large part of the education. Were they part of the faculty or the staff at the University of Michigan? Yes. So it was not through a professional association or maybe you started through friends or through gigs maybe that you were playing, that you met these individuals and had the opportunity to uh, work with them. I say starting around my teenage years, I did take part in something called Michigan Youth Ensemble. Michigan Youth Jazz Ensemble that I did throughout my high school years, which is essentially a small ensemble combo that performed at Hill Auditorium and places in Ann Arbor. And through that experience, I did get to meet Ellen early on and availed myself to meet some of these professors early on, um, which then I think encouraged me to apply to Michigan ultimately. Was the main focus uh, of, of your love and commitment to music at that point more from a performance angle, or were you now beginning to transcend into the composer, the lyricist part of who and what you are today? I'd say the composer part of who I am today started when I was that three-year-old girl at the piano. That, to me, is innately, I think, my strong suit, something I'm most passionate about. I think there's always great you know, interpreters or lyricists, but if I had to say one thing I think I, I could do best or that I love most, it's composing. And I think it's because I've known it the longest. My love of jazz started when I was around seven and progressed from there. I always knew I was entertainer, right? I always knew I wanted to perform. So I think that had a large part of it. Now, when you started writing or composing, were you driven by message or a approach to music that needed to carry not just an emotion, but did have a theme or a central message that was key to you? That's a great question. I think in the last few years, since graduating, the message component of my pieces have really taken center stage. I think because of all the um, volatility right now in the world from a social injustice, climate standpoint, sociopolitical standpoint, I'm very keen to be very sensitive of these changes. And I draw a lot of inspiration from younger generations. I mean, millennials and younger, just seeing the solutions they have and the passion and drive they have to see change. And that really has inspired my music. I think a lot of artists, you know, the, the theme of love and relationships take center stage usually in great songs and historically in songwriting. And I think there's always going to be room for that. But I specifically want my music to have a social commentary element to it and to carry a lot of lyrical weight. Now, do you feel like sometimes that that's risky or is it easier just to take a different plane and, and do love songs and do emotional pieces 
as opposed to a piece that has a message and a punch. I think the true art and the true challenge is combining those two, right? I mean, having a, a song with, as you say, a punch with a strong you know, message, but also that resonates emotionally with a lot of people. And as you say, yes, it can sometimes be risky. I mean, if you're making a sociopolitical statement, yes. But I think, too, I think just the way artists are evolving, artists are also becoming activists. They always have been. And now more than ever, you see artists making statements. And then that in within that act, they gain a lot of their fans and followers because people respect that. So it isn't risky at first, especially as a new artist. But I think ultimately it lends you more credibility in the end. Your latest single is called What Will Our Children Say? And kind of a rally cry, if you will, uh, as to where the next generation either needs to go or wants to go. Where did this come into play for you? And, and why from the angle of what our children are thinking now in these days and times? The inspiration for What Will Our Children Say came from a moment I had um, reflecting, a kind of projecting rather, what it would be like one day when hopefully I'm a mom and a mother and have children. And I started thinking in future tense before I wrote this, like what kind of world will they be growing up in? What kind of issues will they be facing? And just I got kind of worried. So usually when to process things, I turn to the piano and I write music to help myself kind of cope and to process. Can we see past all the lies and the hatred? Turn out the drama. Try to wake you to the path that's clear. There's no war here. Which will shine brighter, the light or the thunder? What spark in the dark will speak to your heart and give you? So this song came out, the lyrics and the melody came out together, and I wanted it to be, as you say, a rally cry, kind of a wake-up call, something with a very outward message that I think the, in the future is hopeful in that you see a lot of climate leaders and sociopolitical leaders starting in the young generations, and I think that's where we can really gain a lot of hope from. Well, and certainly we need that right now. These days and times are turbulent, challenging, and also very concerning in, in many, many respects. But I think music is something that can lift us, that can give us hope, and maybe inspire us to move in a different direction. And is that your mission now, is to make sure that change comes about by way of your music? I think that would be extremely rewarding to see, just as an artist, to experience direct change. I think if I can give pause to listeners, either inspire a sense of reflection, inspire a sense of joy, or a sense of camaraderie. a lot of my music lately now centering, it centers around, you know, relatability 
and being able to connect in an age of disconnect and discord and polarization, I think it would be really rewarding to have that sort of an impact where my music can unite people in a very spiritual way. How do you find a way to, to take a song and craft it to where the message is getting across, but it doesn't become either too somber or too sobering? Usually I, I try to, in order to reflect the truest form of myself and the truest message, I try not to censor it too much up front and I just let whatever comes out come out and then listen back and make sure the lyrics make sense, that they, that they carry some weight, that they have a message that's subtle, not too overt, but subtle, and then that the melody supports the lyric. So like in What Will Our Children Say, the chord progression kind of moves up in all these major chords. So I'm sticking in a major kind of arena and the lyrics are kind of float above it. So I think that part of the melody hopefully will lift people up, even though the message is a little sobering. Well, and I recently did an interview with a composer who was talking about this very thing. And what he said was... Uh, when he does the music, uh, he brings out those dark shadow things, but then it culminates in the piece of music toward the end, toward bringing the light into the picture and bringing hope and joy and celebration. Is that how you try to craft your music so near the end of it, it culminates with a finale that says, hey, everything's going to be okay? Not all my music, but certainly one piece comes to mind where it does follow that sort of theme. Um, my single, Who Can Relate, that follows that form where I kind of bring up some contention and some issues and I kind of have a stream of consciousness going through the song. And at the very end, there's this outro that's about uplifting and coming together. And similarly, in What Will Our Children Say, there's a sort of choral ending. You know, will they say, long live the sun? Will they say, we have won? This sense of conquering social discord or, or taking on um, climate change or, or coming up with strong solutions. It would be amazing to have someone like Greta Thunberg hear my song. Uh, I I think I've been trying to um, come up with a way to contact her, maybe to reach out, but it would be amazing of someone of her caliber to just to hear this song. You had mentioned, speaking of that, uh, that you'd like to have maybe some of this music be considered as a uh, campaign rally song. Have you reached out to any politicians or anyone uh, either at the grassroots level or on a national level to present this music to the world? That is the hope, ultimately. I have, I've been working with uh, my personal manager, Mackenzie, who has been fast at work, reaching out to, as you mentioned, grassroots campaigns, um, conventions, and future rallies at a very grassroots level to the to a very partisan level. And I think she has also reached out to climate change leaders and activists and social justice groups as well. So I'm eagerly awaiting to hear the results of her finds. There's a lot of musical forays I really want to continue to evolve and to explore. And by no means want to limit myself to one. But I think moving forward, poignant lyrics are going to continue to be a part of my songwriting, for sure. Tell us about The Quietest Place. Uh, what was the inspiration for that album? That was my very first album. Um, it was kind of my foray into the recording studio and learning what all that goes into the behind the scenes of making an album. And I actually produced it when I was a student at the University of Michigan, produced by all students. So the recording, you know, audio engineer was a student and um, my fellow musicians were all, you know, studying at the program. 
at the institution. So it was a very familiar kind of familiar experience as an uh, U of M alumna being able to produce an album with other U of M alumni. for that was kind of a coming of age album. So taking upon my experiences as a university student studying music and making new friends inspired was the basis for the inspiration for this album. Again, themes of light and love and unity, you can kind of see that come into play. And that of course has informed a lot of my later music. A lot of it is uh, featuring a lot of collaborations between vocalists and producers and other artists. So it was a very much a group effort. So what is the quietest place? Is that that place for you to come back and get back on track or get yourself either focused or get back on theme? I think when I wrote it, the quietest place meant exactly sort of a, a retreat. The quietest place for me is always by the piano, as is the covers of me sitting by my piano with like birds and, and all kinds of squigglies on the artwork kind of showcasing that it's a moving evolving place but a very comforting place to be by the piano it's my retreat my solace it's basically my home and that's kind of where I can tap into my inner quietude and when you did another track on that album it was called why can't I is that your cry to say you know why can't I do this? I'm confident. I'm strong. I've got what it takes. You need to know that I can. Don't say, why can't I? Yeah, that was a um, one of my more vulnerable tracks on the album because I was kind of showcasing some of the ambiguity I had about pursuing a music career and some of the ambiguity about the challenges and am I up to it and things like of that nature. So I was kind of like a rhetorical song more for for me, like a reflection of some of the uncertainty I was feeling. And so I tried putting that into a song, like, as you say, why can't I take a stab at this? And so eventually you saw the light and then you wrote Illuminate. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Featuring the uh, great friend of mine, amazing vocalist. She just moved to California for her big break. Her name's Jasmine Tompkins. She comes from an amazing musical family. I work with her producer, Julius, a lot, um, or her brother, who happens to be a producer, Julius. But she sang on that song and really illuminated the song. She brought it to life. So, Who are the artists that are in your musical life? Do you uh, perform with a trio, with a quartet? Who are some of your collaborators? 
So I have many collaborators, and they're what really enhanced my music. I wouldn't, I don't think, be where I was, where I am today at all without their help and insight. Um, I work with um, rotating trios from time to time. I don't really have a set band, as it were, right now. I do typically play with a quartet or trio. Some of my longest-standing members of kind of my group are um, a great saxophonist named Anthony Wyatt who graduated from University of Michigan, same program as me in jazz and classical saxophone. And then Julius Tompkins, um, a wonderful producer, a vocalist, multi-talented instrumentalist. Uh, those two have been with me probably since the start, as well as Jasmine Tompkins, an amazing singer. So they kind of have been at my core, and I've worked with a lot of different artists, and a goal of mine is to continue working with different artists and featuring them on my albums and doing arrangements with other artists, too. You alluded to the fact that you might be finding your voice as a rising crossover artist, and so you released a couple of singles, one of which is Distant Land. Why is that a, a seminal change in your focus or direction? That's a great question. And you're right, it definitely was a intended to be a change. Um, prior to Distant Land, a lot of my, you know, a lot of my songs from The Quietest Place uh, EP represented more their traditional jazz idiom. So you're going to have your ballads, your bosses, that sort of thing, you know, a trio, bass, drums, piano, very acoustic sounds, very little electronic influence. The um, change then was pretty marked moving into Who Can Relate in Distant Land. Those were two singles I released. And the idea was to marry the influences of R&B, so having a little more soul influence, a little bit more electronic influence with how the mixing was done in the production aspect, and bringing together a little faster of a beat. So I actually used a drum track, not a real in-house drummer. The you know engineer said, let's just use a drum track, let's get click track going, and let's get a beat and then grow the song from a beat. And so the idea of Distant Land was kind of born as a myriad of jazz influences, R&B and electronic influences kind of merged together. emotional escape. Uh, when I wrote it, you know, as I as I mentioned to my friends all the time, my piano is my place of escape. It's my place of solitude. And so when I went to write this song, I'm thinking, I want to take my listeners to their own place. I want to help them relax and to transport them to a very tranquil place where they can just let the groove wash over them and set their worries free and just surrender to the music. And so that was kind of the hope in writing the, that piece. 
When I was playing it for the first time through the video that you had sent to me on Distant Land, I had it up pretty loud and my wife was in the kitchen and she popped her head in and said, why are you listening to Sade? <laughs> and I understand that's one of your influences. Yes, that that's hilarious. <laughs> They, I, I, she is one of my influences. I grew up listening to her being blasted when I was little, like three, four, and five. My parents would blast her music in this in the living room, and I'd just be like dancing, like, like transfixed by her understated, smooth sound that is so well produced. It's so her own space, and she owns it. And she's one of these artists that it's really difficult to categorize. She's jazzy, but is she jazz? She's soul, but is she R&B? It's like, where does she fit in? And I really admire that she can create her own path and her own genre. She is Sade. And that's a tough thing to live up to as a, as a young starting on artist like me, but that's sort of where I want to end up is using her as a model as in terms of she ran with her sound unabashedly and it worked out and which is my hope. Now the other one that you did also after the uh, 2018 EP was Who Can Relate and that has a really strong R&B root uh, attached to that as well. Right. So kind of to get a little bit more into the weeds, the fun stuff behind the scenes, the thinking behind of who can relate from a more mixing production side of things. I wanted the song, I envisioned it to have kind of a masculine edge, sort of a um, like a rap influence. I was hearing Eminem in my head, and I said, how can I kind of appeal to more of a grit, like a meteor sound? I started tinkering on the on the piano with the low the low end of the piano the bass bass line just the C repetitive kind of uh, C progression and playing kind of a C minor chord and then we got a click track going to that brought in uh, an amazing guitarist a buddy of mine Jesus Sanchez that, that laid down such an amazing track just stream of consciousness no you know pre, no premeditation no rehearsal and just made the song with a real gritty guitar solo and then we have the lyrics kind of floating above it the concept was just to have these kind of effervescent Chardai-esque lyrics about this message of hope again and kind of where we are as a society some of the tumult going on in the world and uh, here's what I think about it and here's what I think we can do to make a better change. So what music genre then are you the most comfortable 
What's in your soul, maybe your heart? Oh, there's there's a lot there. Uh, I think what's always has been near and dear to me is is the art of jazz as an idiom because at its core is improvisation. And as a writer and a composer, improvisation is like your next door cousin. It's like one in the same in a way. There's so much paralleled. So I think that jazz and all of its offshoots and all of its influences are really my soul because jazz is, a, you know, in a box. It's it's like an echo chamber. There's so much involvement going on. It, it's Its source is based on other kinds of music and drawing on those influences. So I think that's really where, where my soul is at. It may be your belief that jazz is ever evolving, but would you say that it's the jazz that's evolving, or is it you personally, Hannah, that is evolving? Hmm. Uh, I think it's it's a mix of both. I mean, and it, you're right, it is a matter of opinion, but at least from my perspective in terms of how, how I choose to interpret jazz, I choose to interpret it as an ever-evolving art form. Being cognizant of where it comes from, understanding the history is definitely one thing, but our, the people that we look up to they always took jazz to the next level and, and infused themselves into it. So I think as long as artists and you know take accountability for the past, but also infuse themselves into the music, that's how it can continue to grow. So is this something that you might continue to add to your music or be the focus or direction of your future music of the things yet to come? I think right now in my bio it says R&B, jazz, soul, composer, to be quite honest. It, <laughs> it's ever-changing, and that title, I think, it, in terms of who I am is in my bio, I think will continue to evolve. I can't promise it's going to stay that way, but I like where it's at right now. I'll take jazzy soul R&B artist. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> Great. Uh, and, and you do it well. And do you have uh, an album that you're working on now that would include some of this influence? Oh, definitely. So the current album uh, I'm working on now, Straight from the Soul, to be released most likely this fall, will have Distant Land and Who Can Relate on it. So I'm putting my singles on the EP. And it is, yes, going to have some more of that jazzy soul influence. A couple other originals that I've written, kind of an homage to kind of the 70s sounds like Carol Bear Sager, Carol King. You'll, you might hear some of those influences too. Fantastic. Uh, you, you need to remind me when this comes out because there'll be another episode. Oh, I would be thrilled to be back. Thank Fantastic. you. Fantastic. Tell me what your feeling is. You, you mentioned a little bit about this on your website, which is hannabiardi.com, and you talk about the role of women in jazz today. How do you feel about that right now? Is it something that's evolving to a better place, or does it still need a lot of hard work and attention? I think both. I think just in the last, seems like a blink, five years or so since I graduated a lot of changes have happened. I'm seeing a lot more representation for women as far as being signed to record labels, coverage by the media, making a stand in their lyrics. Uh, but I also think it needs a lot more work. So I'm trying to, as a, as a woman in jazz, be cognizant of that. So I started this program called Hannah's Corner. Perhaps I've heard of it's a monthly live stream featuring primarily women in the jazz arena, publicists, journalists, and other musicians and instrumentalists in the jazz world that kind of represent the new direction of jazz and where it's heading. So it's kind of a place for all of us women to kind of form a community 
and I hope down the road perhaps to maybe start a website and to start more a greater community, a global community of women in jazz so that we can continue to progress. It starts with the music we're taught to believe is jazz. Honestly, I can't remember the last time I was told to check out a song by a woman jazz pianist if it weren't for me finding it on my own. I think from a very young age, we need to instill in the institutions that um, jazz isn't simply music written by men. It's also music written by women, perhaps haven't been covered as well, but are there and deserve discovering. So something that I made a point of doing when I was a student is mentoring younger jazz, women in jazz in the program and saying, hey, who are you listening to? Oh, this song by this person. Okay, well, have you written your own music? Try, you know, composing. We, we need more women jazz composers. Or have you heard of some other, and I rattled off some women in jazz, heard of these instrumentalists? Oh, no. So I think it starts really at the educational level of learning, playing women's music, really. And then that leads to the next thing to the next thing. So I think that's the genesis of it. So how can people learn more about you? You have a website, which, by the way, is phenomenal. Describe the website and the kinds of things that uh, may be found there. Sure. So my website is, as you said earlier, hannabiardi.com. And you can find a lot of uh, information about who I am. Uh, there's a bio on there. There's some links to my YouTube videos, of my latest music videos. Uh, there's a link to purchase my EP, The Quietest Place and soon will be for my upcoming album. There's some photos, a way to got to basically contact me, and you can also find the link to Hannah's Corner, which is the monthly live stream that features women in jazz. So hopefully in the future, we'll have another opportunity to cross paths and have another uh, conversation with you uh, once that career of yours is strongly established and, and moving forward that you won't forget us here at All That's Jazz. Certainly not. Certainly not. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be a part of your show and to inspire and to raise up artists, independent artists that are trying to make it. I think that's a it's very uh, kind of you to do that. Well, it's our pleasure, and we see in you a, a commitment and a passion that I think people need to see and experience as well by learning more about Hannah Bayardi. Thank you so much today for the time, and we wish you all the best for the future and much success. That means a lot. Thank you so much for having me, Alan. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz, featuring Hannah Bayardi. Our thanks to Ben Sidron for our theme song, Mr. P's Shuffle. We invite you to join us for our next episode featuring a conversation with jazz vocal musician, composer, band leader, and educator, Lenora Zenzele Helm. To learn more about this podcast and to offer us your feedback, please visit our website, allthatsjazz.net. <laughs>